You can read a lot of the statements uh, by leading intellectuals, no matter whether they are Turks or Sephardim or Arabs or from other kinds of backgrounds. You can read them as part of a dialogue where thinking about how to modernize, no matter what, uh, in clothing, in visiting the opera, in all kinds of aspects of daily life. This is seen as a dialogue with the rest of Europe and where uh, quite explicitly people say, yes, we can do this, we want to be part of this. He writes in this document that he is a Constantinopolitan, that he is of free religion, meaning um, a movement which rejected any kind of dogmatic ideas of community and life and death and God. And also that he now wanted to return to Constantinople to take his place in the Turkish nation and identify with his fellow citizens, be they of what religion soever. Beer could actually be both. It could be a high-end commodity. It could be imported beer, especially from Munich, was very prestigious, being consumed in some very downtown places, say on today's Istiklal Jadisi, what was called the Grand Rue de Pera at the time. Um, it could also be something... Uh, some railway worker in Salonika at the end of his shift would uh, consume in a bar somewhere in the more uh, shady parts of town around the train station. Not only um, where people lived, but how people lived, how they would identify themselves. All of this started being very much in flux at the very latest by the second half of the 19th century. It was no longer so clear that you were just, say, a Greek from Smyrna. You could perhaps doubt your identity or see it in other or larger terms or so on. Welcome to a new joint episode of the Southeast Passage and the Ottoman History Podcast. I am Andreas Guidi. I'm Zeynep Arturo. Today, we will take you on a journey to the Mediterranean, and more precisely, to three cities of the Ottoman Empire, Smyrna, Istanbul, and Salonika. We will have a look at how the residents of these cities experienced cultural diversity and new forms of leisure and consumption. It's going to be a discussion about how these cities shaped late Ottoman history, but also how the relations between the Ottoman Empire and European powers impacted these urban worlds in the Mediterranean. Our guest today is Marta Furman, a researcher at the Leibniz Centrum Moderner Orient in Berlin. He authored a new monograph entitled Port Cities of the Eastern Mediterranean, Urban Culture in the Late Ottoman Empire, published by Cambridge University Press. 
Welcome to our podcast, Malte. Thank you, guys. Malte, before discussing your book, let me start by mentioning that we are both in a research group funded by the German Research Foundation, the FG, entitled The Modern Mediterranean Dynamics of a World Region. This network gathers historians based in Germany working on this region. It is coordinated by uh, Manuel Boruta at the University of Konstanz. And uh, we have been discussing for a couple of years now why and how we can elaborate new approaches to the history of the Mediterranean in the modern period, also to better understand the present. And maybe you can give us an example of how very recent developments conceal a much longer history of interactions in this region. Um, I think it is important uh, not only to understand um, the period I studied, the 19th century, but also to sort of grasp uh, world events or events in the region nowadays. And if we get away from this narrative of uh, it being a cultural divide, we will see that actually there's a lot of shared history if you go to some deeper level. Take, for example, the uh, incident a couple of weeks ago between um, the Turkish and German government, which led to quite some anger on both sides when uh, the German Navy, a couple of hundred kilometers off the shore of Libya, stopped and searched a a ship under Turkish flag for 16 hours until the Turkish government intervened and stopped the search of the boat for possible contraband or weapons going to Libya. But if you look into the details, if you break things down to a personal level, um, you will get a much more complicated story. Or the German soldiers, if you look at uh, the life stories, you will probably find that many of them are of ethnic Turkish, ethnic Arabic, ethnic Croat background, so actually are much more colorful than the term German Navy would suggest. And if you look to the other side, you will notice that this ship, which had the very un-Turkish name of Rosaline, um, actually belongs to a company called Arkas, Arkas being a Greek name, not a Turkish name. So if you look at the family behind this logistics company, Arkas, you will see that they trace their family history back to immigrants coming uh, in the early 18th century from Marseille into the Ottoman Empire, living initially on the Ionian Islands. That's where they got this uh, Greek last name, Arkas. But later the family mixed with uh, people from Genoa, Venice, parts of the Habsburg Empire, local Armenians. Um, the story becomes much more complicated and these kind of complicated stories in their 19th century dimension, that's what I'm trying to trace. In the 19th century, the Mediterranean became a colonial space, largely at the expense of the Ottoman Empire. This started with Napoleon's campaign in Egypt and Syria in 1798. Mixing motives drawn from liberalism, such as putting an end to the slave trade and privateering, with economic and territorial calculations, of course, Western powers waged short wars against vassal states of the Ottoman Empire, 
like Tripoli and Algiers that were bombed in 1804 and 1816 respectively. Shortly afterwards, France's invasion of Algeria was the prelude of a settler colonialist project that ended more than a century later in 1962. Tunisia, another autonomous regency formerly belonging to the Ottoman Empire, was also occupied by France in 1881 and ruled as a protectorate for more than 70 years. France was not the only imperialist power in the Mediterranean. Great Britain had occupied Cyprus in 1878 and Egypt in 1882. A much younger imperial power, the Kingdom of Italy, completed the European invasion of North Africa in 1912 by annexing Tripoli and Benghazi, closing the long 19th century of European expansion in the Mediterranean. The Ottoman Empire, a power that once dominated trade and warfare in the Mediterranean, seemed to be losing its grip on this maritime region. However, the Mediterranean remained one of the main sites of confrontation with Western powers. For many late Ottoman observers, the European presence on the shores of the Ottoman Mediterranean was related to the capitulation system or the absence of economic sovereignty after the debt crisis of 1875. In the earlier decades of the 19th century, Europe was not simply perceived as a threat. It also offered dreams of new opportunities. So, um, what I call the European dream is that there are these signals, and we can find several texts by Europeans, including influential people, uh, ambassadors of France, of uh, Great Britain, but also um, academics who travel, who uh, have a certain knowledge of the region. There's this uh, offer, sort of, if you people compete, join in, modernize your lifestyles. There is a greater community of Europe out there and you can be part of that. Um, this is important. Of course, there's a lot of Orientalism towards the uh, people at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, but also quite a number of sources where there's uh, the idea that somehow these cultural differences and differences in development could somehow be bridged. And while they often remain somewhat up in the air in what Westerners say, but you can read a lot of the statements uh, by leading intellectuals, no matter whether they're Turks or Sephardim or Arabs or from other kinds of backgrounds, you can read them as part of a dialogue where thinking about how to modernize, no matter what, uh, in clothing, in visiting the opera, in all kinds of aspects of daily life. This is seen as a dialogue with the rest of Europe and where uh, quite explicitly people say, yes, we can do this, we want to be part of this. The European dream did not spread equally throughout the empire. Port cities in the eastern Mediterranean were particularly exposed to cultural and economic exchanges, producing new expectations. After all, port cities were the place where artifacts and fashions arriving from the west first touched Ottoman soil. How did cities like Smyrna, Constantinople and Salonika look like at the time? Um, on the one hand, these are three of the largest ports of their time. Smyrna was the port of the eastern Mediterranean throughout much of the century 
only eclipsed later by Alexandria. Istanbul, Constantinople, of course, was a bit of a different thing because it was also the capital and later also became one of the centers of exchange. Salonika, actually, economically speaking, was in a bit of a decline initially in the early decades of the century, but later also managed to become one of the largest uh, sites of import and export into the empire, especially for its uh, hinterland, the Central Balkans, uh, affecting Greek, Bulgarian, Serbian uh, populations especially. So all three of these cities were very mixed, very diverse in terms of the languages spoken and um, religions or varieties of religion practiced there. All of them had large Greek and Turkish populations at the same time. Constantinople, Smyrna were sort of balanced out between Greek and Turkish population. It changes over the decades and according to uh, which source you consult, you always have some larger Armenian and Sephardic Jewish populations in all of these cities as well. And Salonika is a bit of a special case because as of already the early decades of the Ottoman Empire, it actually has a Spanish-speaking Jewish majority, by far the largest population at least 40%, and if not even more in the earlier period, is dominated by the Sephardim, with Turks ranking seconds, Greek third, then as, as usual, um, some Armenians, but also some of the Slavic population from around the city. This picture is complicated even more, in the course of the 19th century because people from, say, the Anatolian highlands or Muslim refugees from some newly forming Balkan states come to these cities looking for jobs and a livelihood. But also we have people actually from much further afield, and this is something which has often been ignored. We have immigrants from Malta, Dalmatia, especially southern Italy, who migrate around the Mediterranean, and um, these big ports are some of the places they go to making a living, and they form there something which has been called a Levantine population, a population dominated by Catholic religion, plus an absolute mix of different languages. And what you can often read in the older literature is something which one could call the cosmopolitanism of the bazaar. Um, according to this vein of interpretation, these people were very much defined actually by their religions and their specific communities. They would actually live in what was believed to be homogenic neighborhoods which would close off to the other neighborhoods at night leaving people to pray together in their synagogues or churches or mosques or um, socializing with people of the same religion. And their interaction would be limited to meeting at the bazaar in daytime through clearly regulated forms of exchange. Since approximately 
20 years, I would say, this uh, image is starting to shift. Initially, for example, Marie-Carmen Smirnelis showed that people started to move from these more homogenic uh, kind of neighborhoods. As of the late 19th century, there were more modern parts of town which you would move to if you had enough money, if you were working in the downtown neighborhoods or so. And in general, our idea now is that not only um, where people lived, but how people lived, how they would identify themselves. All of this started being very much in flux at the very latest by the second half of the 19th century. It was no longer so clear that you were just, say, a Greek from Smyrna. You could perhaps doubt your identity or see it in other or larger terms or so on. For one example of how these identities were to some degree in flux, um, I like to point to this one song in Greek which exists until today with slightly changed lyrics. Um, it was recorded, re-recorded with its original lyrics uh, a couple of years ago by Muamer Ketenge Olu, uh, and he calls it Tosalvari, the shalvar, the baggy pants. And it is a scene in the streets of Smyrna, Izmir. A man passes a woman and tries to flirt with her and uh, addresses her, uh, asking several questions, among others, are you Greek or are you Turkish? Or actually, are you French or English? You are so beautiful. And this woman tries to sort of keep his attention going, but also to defend her honor at the same time. And there's this uh, ambiguous situation. You never find out what is the ethnic tag of this woman in the end. You never know, is this couple actually more turned on or turned off by one another? And this state of ambiguity, of playing with identities, is actually characteristic, at least of some of the actors of the late 19th century. And in doing this, they kind of follow a, a philosophy of um, something some Habsburg writers, but also Friedrich Nietzsche at the time, um, called for. Um, these writers reflected upon the fact that uh, the 19th century was very much a transitory phase where identities were in flux and where nobody really knew where the journey was going yet. As Nietzsche put it, uh, if we cannot really influence our times to be as we wish they would, then we should at least make uh, as much as we could of the cosmopolitan gods, morals and arts carnival, as he calls it. And I think that is exactly what people are doing when they are enjoying songs as this or question their identity. I could go into one more example a rather odd example I found in the German archives of somebody called Wilfried Blumberg, who was just returning from a longer stay in a mental health institution in Germany. Um, so he comes to Salonika, writes to the consul, since he does not find the consul, and thanks for the fact that the German state had actually 
financed his trip from Istanbul, where he was living, to a, an institution in Germany, but also kind of rejects being a German as of now. He writes in this document that he is a Constantinopolitan, that he is of free religion, meaning um, a movement which rejected any kind of dogmatic ideas of community and life and death and God. And also that he now wanted to return to Constantinople to take his place in the Turkish nation and identify with his fellow citizens, be they of what religion soever. So here we have somebody who probably grew up as a German immigrant or son of a German immigrant in Istanbul, but however, he wants to be part of this Ottoman dream of uh, a community beyond ethnic tags, um, which I think in this way could only be possible at this particular conjuncture in time and in this particular cultural atmosphere of the time. Welcome back to the Southeast Passage and the Ottoman History Podcast. Andreas Quidi and Zeynep Erturul in conversation with Malte Forman, author of Port Cities of the Eastern Mediterranean, Urban Culture in the Late Ottoman Empire. Historians often study national identities as a consequence of state-driven processes or the aim of political movements. In Ottoman poor cities, though, identities were also creatively used by individuals as they interacted with each other in everyday life. Consulates and religious buildings might have been places where single identities became more visible and rigid. However, this was not the end of the story. Within an Ottoman Empire still largely composed of rural territories, port cities offered new spaces of leisure and entertainment, enjoying music, theater, or even a stroll on the quay, often did not require distinctions along ethnic, religious, or national categories. So these cities were changing all over. They were being rebuilt, their water sides changed, uh, a proper keys or docks uh, were added later in some of these uh, ports also um, 
more extensive port facilities. The whole aesthetics of the area changed. And with that, uh, more sophisticated forms of leisure um, also emerged. And many of these followed forms, which at the first glance might seem one-on-one with what was happening to the west of the Mediterranean, but actually played out in some cases rather differently with very different cultural meanings in this setting. Some of these would be the societal balls. One had to learn how to dance, to waltz in company, mostly during the winter months. It became very common to use these new regulated keys along the waterside for an evening stroll with the family, with friends. Around these uh, keys and in the back streets, you would find cafes, which would quite often have uh, musicians, traveling musicians in some case from as far away as uh, provincial Bohemia, the so-called bohemian orchestras uh, with a large female uh, segment to them most of the time. And two forms of culture stick out in particular, which uh, conquered these cities or uh, became extremely popular in a short amount of time. One of them sort of the highbrow culture and the other one a very everyday commodity that is opera and beer. These highbrow Forms of entertainment such as opera uh, were definitely uh, widespread. Uh, I could find out that among the opera fanatics of Constantinople in the early uh, 1850s, yes, you had a lot of um, people with foreign names, Italian names, uh, some German names or Slavic names, but you definitely also had a lot of... uh, proper Muslim Turkish names, Greek names, or people from the wider region, Christian Arabs or Montenegrins, um, all of these people would convene. So it was definitely not, as uh, still some Ottoman sources at the time called it, a form of entertainment for Franks. It was definitely something people, locals, got into very much. And um, partisanship to especially the main actresses and singers who were by majority Italians, who were hired there for a season of a year or longer, this actually made people excited. And in some cases, there were some incidents of serious fights between the fans and the people who criticized uh, these singers. Um, And the press also uh, was very lively in following opera. Now, of course, um, this was at the center of attention. And we then find a hierarchy. Um, These women who came from some places which uh, used to have mining, but uh, then once the mining had died down, started to focus on forming these huge orchestras which uh, would travel abroad. These women were hardly ever given much attention. They were sort of taken as a given. They would play for hours on end in cafes where people would amuse themselves. Um, There were some cases where this was even likened to prostitution, but I'm fairly sure that uh, this was not outright prostitution, as even some local uh, consular sources affirmed. Even though 
some of these women would occasionally marry one of the men from the audience stay on in the Ottoman Empire. Beer could actually be both. It could be a high-end commodity. It could be imported beer, especially from Munich, was very prestigious, being consumed in some very downtown places, say on today's Istiklal Jadisi, what was called the Grand Rue de Pera at the time. Um, it could also be something, uh, some railway worker in Salonika at the end of his shift would uh, consume in a bar somewhere in the more uh, shady parts of town around the train station. He would then probably not end up uh, drinking one of these imported Munich beers, but one of the local uh, Ottoman beers, which actually were being produced in industrial size as of the 1890s and which also uh, had a fairly good reputation. Beer houses and opera theatres were certainly perceived by their visitors as joyful and entertaining places. With other spaces of sociability, they were more and more associated with port cities, which in turn came to represent a way of urban life that could be criticized as foreign and immoral, but also generated expectations to be part of cosmopolitan modernity. Yet for many, these expectations were not fulfilled. They turned into frustration and even enmity toward Europe and the European dream, which had seemed to be at reach. Inspired by the hero of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Malte Furman calls these frustrated men the Ottoman Raskolnikovs. What does this term mean? Only once we get to the early decades of the 20th century, we find a much more arrogant way of looking at the Ottoman territories from Western Europe. It is clear at some point that there's no longer this intent to actually let the Ottomans uh, have the same status as the other Europeans. While there is actually a large degree of exchange, French has by then become the language of the empire for people to communicate even amongst each other. At the same time, we see this frustration and what I call these uh, Raskolnikovs on the rise. I was inspired by uh, Pankaj Mishra's book, The Age of Anger, which tries to draw parallels from angry young men who might today join the Islamic State, but who have a history dating back to the 19th century, to Dostoevsky's writings about um, why he believes um, materialism as it comes across, uh, especially from Great Britain, is a danger to the Russian society as he knows it. And while we do not find uh, writers who can put this to words as elegantly in the Ottoman context, in what I've come across, I do find that uh, the men of action, so that is where Raskolnikov uh, comes from, these people who have experiment, have tried to live up to the standards of this new materialist utilitarian age, and who have not really made the grade, who um, perhaps could advance, but who are driven by feelings of inadequacy, possibly jealousy, carry on this anger and are willing to tear apart society as they know it uh, in order to create a new, uh, more nationalist uh, 
more unified order for these territories. One of them is Enver Pasha, born in Istanbul to a middle-class family, uh, then going into a career in the military academy, ending up one of the people with the highest grades in his class. People like Enver Pasha, I think, would not have had any problems to sort of make it to the higher echelons of this mixed society, together with other Ottoman officers in the leading clubs of uh, Pera, today's Beolu of Istanbul, could have met foreign diplomats there, had dinner with them, be invited to the embassy receptions and whatnot. But at some point, he deliberately chooses to sort of kick all of this away to go into this nationalist mind frame to find it offensive when at uh, some invitation by the ambassador, uh, by the German ambassador, he finds out he has to sit together with uh, Greek merchants at the same dinner table. Um, this kind of mentality, I think, is very well captured by Pankaj Mishra, and we can trace it to these people who then uh, actually contribute to tearing down the diversity of the port cities and the Ottoman Empire in general. We have to always keep in mind that under Abdul Hamid, the possibilities of expressing one opinion on uh, controversial politics are, of course, severely limited. So it would be hard to say anything very strongly about the period before 1908. But as of 1908, we have, of course, a kind of roller coaster of um, different attitudes coming to the fore. Initially, we have this great feeling of fraternity. And I think possibly this person I mentioned earlier, Wilfried Bloomberg, he's inspired by this, by this idea that all citizens, no matter what religion, could all live as one. Um, this is, of course, then followed uh, by several events where relations already start to deteriorate. Uh, for example, in Izmir, there are protests against the fact that uh, foreign films are not subtitled in Ottoman Turkish, even though, um, and this just goes to show you how multilingual people actually were, the original Greek subtitles, which had existed in the first few years of films being shown in Izmir, were at some point dropped because it would just keep the process of the film distribution much longer. So people were watching movies in original French and Italian and did not bother with the Greek even. But then this nationalist wave or counter-reaction actually comes. So these are some of the signs where uh, we see that uh, the disruption of this uh, order of diversity actually uh, started very much from the inside. This is not just something uh, people from the hinterland bring into the city who don't understand the order of the city. This is something being orchestrated very much by local people who are fed up with this order because they don't see it working to their own advantage. Dreams and insecurities related to Europe were among the factors shaking the Ottoman peace from within. For a long time, the Ottoman Empire was considered a haven for linguistic and religious diversity. For centuries, the coexistence of different religious and linguistic groups was assured by a system based on inequality. It nevertheless provided relative security to non-Muslims against persecution and mass violence. 
In the late 19th century, these modes of coexistence were progressively destroyed. Their destruction was also linked to the empire's relations with European powers. So after we see this build-up of tension in these cities, uh, these tendencies to uh, fight over such silly things as whether a movie should have Ottoman subtitles or who should wear a fez, whether one should wear a fez at all, we then see this uh, chain of events and obviously much of what happens is influenced uh, from far beyond the port cities, what is outside of their control, uh, the Balkan Wars, World War One, the genocide perpetrated against the Armenians, the later war between Turkey and Greece over uh, the possession of Anatolia, the exchange of populations between the two countries, then World War II, which brings the Holocaust to uh, Salonika, and a number of of discriminating legislation, which actually continues for decades. I think like could easily say that for these northern cities of the Eastern Mediterranean, Salonika, Izmir, and Istanbul, it takes like 50 years to sort of eradicate this mixed uh, culture. And in some other parts of the Mediterranean, perhaps even later, uh, this is not a culture which dies overnight, uh, but a culture which uh, by now you need a very particular view to still uh, find its traces in these cities. The Ottoman urban worlds in the Mediterranean disappeared in the course of the 20th century. Direct testimonies, who are still alive, are of course extremely rare. Their memory will be fading into a mix of nostalgia and oblivion in the public space, a space where initiatives aimed at valuing the history of cultural diversity coexist with projects which further erase this history's traces. In the case of Salonika, for example, especially the Jewish community has been fostering a cultural rediscovery of its presence in the long period before the rupture of the Holocaust. In 2020, the municipality of Izmir has sponsored an exhibition entitled Izmir Levantins. So the fascinating stories we portrayed in our episode today leave us with the feeling of a lost world, accessible for us only through museums, photographs and history books. Still, can Ottoman port cities of the late 19th century possibly dialogue with the world we live in today? Can they tell us something, for example, about politics and cultures of coexistence? Well, on the one hand, there are some obvious uh, parallels to um, the early 21st uh, century. The period I studied, the 19th century, is uh, also an era of great economic expansion. It is also an era of unprecedented global interconnectedness. In the 19th century, just in our days, we have people who very much live up to these possibilities, who either actually enjoy uh, them, make the most of them, as uh, Nietzsche said, live up to the cosmopolitan gods, morals, and arts carnival. Um, and then we have people who are overwhelmed, who make do with it, or who actually uh, try to oppose and fight this. And what I think is one parallel, it is not 
in phases when diversity fades that we actually have this strong militant call for dissolving diversity. It is actually at points in time when uh, diversity and its acceptance in larger society grows that uh, the people who try to move against this uh, have to move towards more radical forms of expressing themselves to uh, be heard and to counter this uh, growing diversity. This is to some degree what happened before World War I and what is happening today. Whether today our cosmopolitan gods, morals and arts carnival, to stick to that Nietzschean uh, term, are more resilient than the culture before World War I or not is something we will see in the next couple of years or decades. Um, it is too early to say. Well, Malte, thank you very much. This was a very rich episode in which we introduced a wide set of topics from cosmopolitan travelers to beer and opera, from dreams to frustrations related to Europe, from Nietzsche to Greek street songs. Uh, thanks very much to the two of you. Thank you for all the great uh, questions and these uh, possibilities to discuss here. Thank you very much. Let us remind our listeners that you can find a much more detailed account of all this in Malte Forman's new monograph entitled Port Cities of the Eastern Mediterranean Urban Culture in the Late Ottoman Empire, published by Cambridge University Press. If you're interested in the history of the Ottoman Empire, the Mediterranean and the Balkans, don't forget to follow the Ottoman History Podcast and the Southeast Passage on their website, on which you will also find additional material and a bibliography on today's episode. You can also join the Ottoman History Podcast and the Southeast Passage on social media platforms, where you can interact with our community and stay informed on new releases. This was all for today, and until next time... Taleme. Arrivederci.